If you have a Bible with you, you can pull it out and turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be starting today. Some of you have been seeing that pattern in the last few weeks, and you go, yeah, of course, Brian's not finished with Matthew 5 yet, so that's where he's going to start off today, and that's absolutely correct. We have been working through a series this summer, and we're going to be continuing to do that into the fall, called The Upside-Down Kingdom, where we're looking at this kingdom of God idea that Jesus introduces in the Gospels. This kingdom of God is this realm or this culture or this idea of a place that we now, as Christians, Christ followers, are citizens of. It's invisible. It's not some place that you can see on a map or go to. But as Christ followers, followers, we are invited to participate in that culture, in a new society called the kingdom of God. And one of the things that we're discovering as we look at what that kingdom means is that the values of the kingdom of God are completely different than the values of the culture and the kingdoms that we live in in our physical world. And we saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at sex and adultery and and all that stuff. And we saw that, that what Jesus was saying was very different than what our culture says. This week, we're continuing on in this part of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is where we are going to be spending most of our time in this series. It's called the Sermon on the Mount by some people because Jesus gave this big, long speech on the hillside of a mountain. And so we're going to look at what he says in Matthew 5, starting at verse 31. It has been said, this is Jesus speaking, it has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now immediately, I know some of you are looking in your Bibles and saying, "Uh, Brian, The editor of my Bible kind of divided that in half somewhere. You know, there's that part that talks about divorce, and and then there's that part that's talking about oaths or vows. Why are we doing them both at the same time? Is it because we're going to run out of time? Partly. But more than that, I thought that they just went well together. When Jesus was giving his big, long talk on the mountain, he didn't pause and say, new subject. It was a continuous teaching. And I think it's fitting and appropriate that he talks about oaths right after he talks about divorce. For one thing, when we think of an oath, an oath, simply put, is making a declaration or a commitment, and we do that in marriage. We make declarations and commitments in marriage. We call them vows. Often we make them at a wedding. 
And so divorce is the breaking of the declaration or the commitment or the vow that you took at your marriage, at your wedding. We'll go into that in a little bit. Let's start with the oath side for a minute. Jesus' teaching on oaths needs to be understood with a little bit of context. Context is always helpful. Why is Jesus saying what he's saying? Well, Jesus is saying what he's saying because there was a culture that he was living in that would say, if you do an oath in a certain way, it's more valuable than if you do it in a different way. There was an idea that in the first century in Judea, people would make oaths in the name of God, and because of their oath in the name of God, they would be saying, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, then God can punish me. The Pharisees looked at this and said, there's an issue here, because people lie. And so people weren't keeping their oaths. And the Pharisees said, there's an issue here. The issue isn't that people are lying. The issue is that people are using God's name. And so they are not keeping the third commandment, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's funny, isn't it? Because I would think that the lying part would be at least as important as not taking God's name in vain. But the Pharisees said, no, no, no. If you're going to break your oath, and most of you are, don't oath it, vow it in God's name. Do another formula. Say, I'm going to do this. I swear it by my oldest goat. And then if you break it, it's no big deal. And so there, there became this idea of, of a formula, of a ritual, of a, of a way of doing oaths. And if you, if you vowed an oath on heaven, it would mean more than if you vowed an oath on your goat. And Jesus sees right through this, like many of you are starting to see through it. The issue here for Jesus was not what formula you used, which name you vowed under. The issue was that people weren't keeping their vows. People weren't keeping their word. And so their word was meaning nothing. It's interesting how we now live in a society that's very similar to that. We no longer will make business deals on people's words. We want contracts and bindings and legal papers. Our yes doesn't always mean yes, does it? But Jesus says here, that the formula isn't important. Your word is important. He says all you need to say is simply yes or no. Nothing else needs to be said. James, the brother of Jesus, who became a Christ follower after Jesus' death, must have heard Jesus speaking on this before. And so he writes about it in James chapter 5, verse 12. This is James speaking. He says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. This is serious stuff, folks. And so the bottom line here 
for us as Christ followers is if we want to live within the kingdom of God, if we want to live the way that Jesus tells us to live, if we want to say, I want to put Jesus first in my life, and I want to do what he wants above what I want, then we need to make our word worth something. We need to keep our word. When we say yes, we need to do it. When we say no, we need to not do something. Parents, this is really important. I have two young kids, and and this is really hard sometimes with young kids, right? Because they'll come to you, or at least mine come to me, and they say, Daddy, can we do da 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 And sometimes I will just instantly give an answer. No, you can't do that. For example, my, my kids might come to me and say, Dad, we're hungry. Can we have some food? And, and I'll be, be like, no, it, it's almost dinner time. Like, just wait. And then I'll actually take a minute and I'll look at my watch and be like, oh, wait. Like, we have a couple hours until dinner. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, no, no problem, guys. Go, go grab some, some fruit or something. But see, what I've done there is I've changed my answer. And if I do that too often with my kids, they're going to not take my answer seriously. It's important that we think about that. And and so one of the things that I try to do, and not do it well, but one of the things I try to do is to give myself a little bit of thinking time. And this, this can work with adults as well. Instead of immediately saying yes or immediately saying no, when my daughter comes to me and asks, Dad, can I finger paint in my new dress? I say, let me think about that for a second. And I give myself a little bit of time to come up with the answer that I want to give so that I don't change my mind. I don't do that all the time. Often I'll say, no, you can't paint in in your dress. Of course not. But if we want to be followers of Jesus, he tells us to make your yes be yes and your no, no. We need to do that in all areas of our life. Now on to the whole divorce part. Divorce is a tough subject. It is a tough subject because there are people in this congregation today who are going through a divorce. There are people in this congregation today who already have gone through a divorce, and there are many people in this congregation who are children of divorced parents. And so I want to recognize that this is not an easy subject, and I want to also just say, for many of you, I've walked with you through the challenges that you've been facing in marriages, And in no way do I want to undermine or minimize the situations that you have or the the incredible difficulties and the incredible strides that you've made. But ultimately, we want to get back to what does Jesus say about that and how do we apply it to our lives. So again, let's go into some context for a minute. Because how Jesus talks about divorce, it makes it pretty clear that there was an underlying context in there. He didn't just talk about divorce simply to talk about divorce. People were asking him, where do you stand on divorce? How do we follow you in divorce settings? What teaching, where are you going to land on this divorce issue? You see, 
in first century Judea, there were two main schools, rabbinic schools, of thought on divorce. There were probably many others, but these were the two main ones. One was from Rabbi Hillel, and one was from Rabbi Shammai. And I'm sure I'm butchering those names. (laughs) Rabbi Shammai took his stance from Deuteronomy 24, which says this. 24.1 If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his home. Dot, dot, dot. We'll get to those dots in a second. And so Rabbi Shammai looked at that and said, okay, this is what we need to do in terms of divorce. And he took a very conservative, very strict understanding of this. He focused on the word indecent, and he said, okay, there has to be something incredibly indecent, immoral, that has happened in this marriage for divorce to be an option. Now, Rabbi Hillel also took his stance from the same scripture. Interestingly enough, isn't it? But he focused on a different part. He put the emphasis in the other syllable. And he said, the main part here is the displeasing part. And so he took a much more lax, liberal view of things, and he said, okay, if a woman displeases her husband, he can divorce her. For example, if a woman is an incompetent cook and burns her husband's dinner, divorce. If a husband gets tired of his wife's plain appearance and desires a more beautiful wife, divorce. And so we have Jesus in this context and people knowing these two schools of thought and saying, okay, Jesus, where are you going to land here? Are you going to be strict? Are you going to be lax? Are you going to be conservative? Are you going to be liberal? Where are you going to land in this? To understand what and why Jesus says what he says, we need to look at another part of Scripture where Jesus, again, is asked this question about divorce in in Matthew chapter 19. 3 to 9. This is what it says. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They tested Jesus. And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Obviously, they knew about the whole Shammai Hillel debate. And Jesus says this Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. To his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. When we look at Jesus' response in Matthew 19 as well as in Matthew 5, we see that his focus was very different than the Pharisees. For example, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the allowance of divorce. In what way am I allowed to get a divorce? In what way is someone allowed to get divorced? 
Jesus wasn't preoccupied with the allowance, with the loophole. He was focused on the blessing of a marriage. Jesus says, for this reason, a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Brandon, can you bring up those pieces of paper? Thank you, sir. This morning, I took two separate pieces of paper. Beautiful. Two separate pieces of paper. And I glued them together. And then when I got here, I asked my friend Brandon here to take them apart. And he did a fantastic job, don't you think? This is a fantastic image of what happens in a divorce and and what happens in a marriage. One of the challenging parts for us is that we live in a physical world. We understand physicality. We understand that in a marriage, husband and wife join together, husband and wife live together, husband and wife share a bed together, husband and wife are together. We even get a little bit of the, the, the emotional connection between a husband and wife. And we can say, yeah, that, I guess there is an intimacy and a connection there. What we don't often understand is that there's another layer to our lives, and that's the spiritual layer. And what we don't realize is that when we make a covenant between one another before God and before each other, something happens in that spiritual dimension. And when we read Jesus quoting the Old Testament that says that the two become one, we need to take that seriously, even if we don't understand it. Somehow, in our spiritual realm, the two become one. The other part is that when we get a divorce, we understand that in a physical realm. Right? The two no longer live in the same house. The two no longer share a bed. We also understand that that separates in an emotional realm. The two probably no longer have a commitment to one another, no longer love one another, no longer feel those ooey-gooey emotions to one another. But what we don't realize is that on the spiritual realm, it's kind of like separating two pieces of paper that were stuck together. I have a pink piece of paper and a green piece of paper, and when you rip them apart, there's still parts of the green piece of paper on the pink piece of paper. There are still parts of the pink piece of paper on the green piece of paper. There are holes that were left in the pink piece of paper, and there are holes that were left in the green piece of paper. There was not a clean break. In the spiritual realm... There is no divorce. And so when you physically and emotionally separate, the two are still one. And what that means is that when they then move on to another relationship or not into another relationship, they still bring part of their original spouse with them. And the spouse brings part of them with them as well. Now again, we're talking about things that we don't, can't fully understand, right? But when Jesus says it, we need to take it seriously. And so instead of looking at how do we get around these loopholes, 
Jesus focuses on the blessing of marriage. He says, look, when you get married, the two become one. And that's good not only for procreation. That's good not only for, for emotional fights. That's good for so many reasons. And there's a spiritual dimension there that you don't understand, but is as real as the physical and the emotional dimension as well. The second thing that we see in Jesus' answer to the Pharisees was that, was that the Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. Why did Moses then command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her on her way? Jesus doesn't call it a command. He calls it a concession for the hardness of the human heart. When we understand that divorce was never plan A. Divorce was never plan A. God doesn't start in Genesis and say, the two will become one until they no longer feel those ooey-gooey feelings towards one another, and then we'll get a divorce in this way. Divorce is always a concession. In the same way that hopefully you didn't stand in a church or in a field or wherever you stood in your marriage and make declarations and vows to one another with the plan A that in a few years you're going to get divorced. People don't do that. You want to be together for life, at least in the beginning. Now, just for interest's sake, let's, let's go back to Deuteronomy 24.1 because that's what the Pharisees are, are, are quoting, kind of. And just look at the context for a second. And I have it up here. What I want you to look at is the ifs. The ifs. Whenever you see an if, an if isn't a command, it's a concession. This is what Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce giving it to her and sending her from his home. And if, after she leaves his home, she becomes the wife of another man, and she's a really bad cook, so her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his home. And if that man dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. How many people still think this is about divorce? It really sounds a whole lot more like remarriage to me. It sounds a whole lot more like God is saying, if you divorce someone, you better be sure that you are done with that relationship. Because if, in a few years, that woman becomes single again, you can't Marry her again. When we read the Bible, we got to read it in context, folks. That's one of the problems that was going on in the first century. Now, again, we need to recognize in Matthew 19, Jesus does give a concession. He says, you know, if there's marital unfaithfulness, if there's adultery, something like that, then a divorce is possible. It's a concession. It's not a commandment. It's a concession. But I want us to look for a second at the wider gospel narrative and see that there is a command throughout 
the Gospels, certainly throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a command for forgiveness and reconciliation. And before we look at whether people have the right to get divorced or not, as Christians, we really need to look at what the command of forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. There was an early theologian, Chrysostom, and he had it right, I believe, when he linked divorce and the Beatitudes together in a sermon. He says, and this is me paraphrasing, but he says, for the Christian who is meek, for the one who is a peacemaker, for the humble and the poor in spirit, how can you cast aside your spouse? The one who truly understands grace and reconciliation of ourselves to God, how can we at the same time cease to at least attempt grace and reconciliation with one another, with the one that we loved so much at one time? And so when people talk to me about the troubles in their marriage, when people talk to me about thinking about a separation or a divorce, I want to start the conversation over again with the blessings and the vows of marriage, with the beauty and the love of God in his grace and forgiveness. Because if we have been forgiven much, can we also forgive? If God reconciles us to himself, can we at least attempt reconciliation? It's really interesting. In the Old Testament, there are a whole lot of different images and, and, and illustrations that God gives of him coming to reconcile himself to Israel. And most of those images are that Israel has been this adulterous woman. And we could say it was an adulterous man. It doesn't matter. But that Israel has been adulterous and doesn't deserve God's love anymore. And yet God chooses to reconcile and to forgive. Now, that's God's love. His is a perfect love. Ours love is not anywhere close to that perfection. But should it not be our goal? Let me just turn for a second to application. Let me give you a few rubber-hits-the-road ideas here. If you are married, or if you are single and you are looking to be married... Take divorce off the table. Take divorce off the table. Make it not even an option. This is something that Heather and I have done in our marriage. Heather and I will be married for 10 years in October. And that is like a drop in the bucket compared to some of you. And yet in those 10 years, Heather and I have not always liked each other. We love each other. But there are things that I do that she goes, yeah, I don't like you right now. And vice versa. You see, when we got married, I had ooey-gooey feelings towards her. But those ooey-gooey feelings were not the glue that we were going to build our marriage on. Those ooey-gooey feelings leave very quickly at 3 o'clock in the morning when the baby's screaming. Those ooey-gooey feelings aren't always there when you're in the middle of an intense fight. So Heather and I, before we were married, we chose 
that our love was going to be based not on the ooey-gooey feelings, but on the commitment that we had to one another, to love one another despite all the other junk in our lives. And that's a good thing. Because if your marriage is based on the ooey-gooey feelings, then it's going to crumble. I hope you have the ooey-gooey feelings still, at least from time to time. But more than that, I hope and I pray that your marriage is based on the commitment that you've made to one another. And so Heather and I, we joke about this, how divorce is not an option for us. We have to work through things, even if they are incredibly hard, even if they are incredibly painful. We will choose to work through them because divorce is not an option. If Heather leaves, I'm coming with her. (laughs) Vice versa. Number two, if you are not married and are looking at getting married at some point, marry a Christ follower. I'm sorry to say that so bluntly, but marry a Christ follower. Because if you marry someone whose values are not your values, if you marry someone who, does, who believes that divorce is an option, who believes that sex does not need to exclusively be in marriage, who has not been forgiven and reconciled by the love of God yet in Jesus Christ, you are starting too far apart. And yes, there is always that beautiful, romantic idea, but I will, I'll bring him, I'll bring her to Christ. That sometimes works. But from my experience... Most of the time it goes the other way. Where if a couple get married and one is a Christ follower and one is not a Christ follower, then the Christ follower will start to be pulled farther and farther away from Jesus. But if two people who both have their heart and and mind set on Christ as number one in their life get married, they are walking in the right direction. They are walking together in the same direction. And so I want to urge you today. I don't care how much you love this guy, you love this girl. I don't care how attracted to them you feel. If your values, if your morals, if your beliefs aren't in sync, it's not going to be good for you. It is going to be painful. Number three, if you are right now in the middle of a divorce, if you are separated or or thinking about being separated or in the middle of even a a divorce case right now, I want to say to you it's not too late. And I want to encourage you even right now to start praying and praying that God would do a miracle in your heart and in your spouse's heart. That God would remind you both of the commitment that you've made and that God would give you the tools to mend the marriage, mend the relationship. And please, hear me. I get that if you're in that spot right now, like, it may feel like you have, like, no hope. You may be feeling right now that, like, you are just so far gone that you can't even think that you would be able to, to start again. I want to tell you that our God is a God of impossibilities. Our God is a God who can do miracles still today. And so I want to invite you to start praying and talk to me about that and 
And I'll definitely pray with you about that. Last but not least, if you are divorced and you are looking at starting a new relationship, I want to tell you that you just need to be careful. Because if, if two becoming one and then two again looks like this, when you start a new relationship, you need to be aware that you're going to be bringing baggage into that relationship. And your future spouse needs to be aware that you're going to be bringing baggage into that relationship. And there needs to be openness there. There probably needs to be a lot of counseling going on there. A lot of forgiveness and reconciliation there. So that this new relationship can be a healthy, godly relationship focused on Christ. There's lots of things that we haven't talked about here today and and lots of probably very specifics about specific situations. You know, not being a Christian and becoming a Christian and where does that work in terms of divorce, all this kind of thing. If you have more questions about this, I'd love to talk to you more about it. But here's what I want you to take out of it. Jesus focuses on the blessing of marriage. That should be our focus as well. The commitment and blessing that God instills in a committed marriage is beautiful. It doesn't mean that there won't be hard times. There will be lots of hard times. But you you have a choice to make. We choose either the easy road, which unfortunately a lot of our culture is choosing right now, and divorce is very easy, or you choose what Jesus has to say. And whenever we get to that situation, whenever we get to a choice that is easy or is what our culture has to say versus what Jesus has to say, even if it's super hard, friends, we need to choose Jesus every single time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to just, first and foremost, just pray for those who right now are feeling like they have something impossible going on in their lives that their marriage just feels absolutely done, broken, over. And yet, even now, Lord, if your Holy Spirit is just moving in their heart, I just pray that you would bring them into the understanding of your grace. Grace for them. Grace for their spouse. Lord, I pray that you would help them to move towards forgiveness, even towards reconciliation. Lord, at this moment, I have a feeling that that some of those just seem like mountains that seem impossible. But you are the God who moves mountains. And so we just claim that you are able to do more than we can ever, ever think or imagine. And Father, for for those who, who even just right now have absolutely no interest in even working on that reconciliation, I just pray that you would touch their heart and soften their heart a little bit, even today. And Father, for those here today who are in a marriage that is built on that, on that covenant, on those promises made, not just the ooey gooey feelings, but the covenant made together. And yet, 
they're wishing that divorce could be on the table. Lord, I just pray that you would touch them as well. For those marriages that are just so hard right now, we just pray that you would bring your forgiveness and your grace, that you would bring reconciliation, that you would renew their love and commitment to one another. Father God, we thank you that you want to work a miracle there as well. Lord, for those who are seeking marriages, we just pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would bring the right person into their life, a person that loves you and will honor them well. And Father, I pray that you would give them patience in the meantime, that they wouldn't settle for something less than what you're bringing. And Lord, we just pray a blessing on the marriages here that are strong. We pray that you would continue to strengthen them, that you would continue to uphold them with your righteous right arm, that you would be their foundation, that you would bless the generations in those households. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.